Hi everybody, Chris Roberts here from I Saw It on Linden Street. You know, it's been a heck of a year, and while we've been making some progress, due to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, vulnerable communities are still out there struggling, with seniors being one of the leading groups that are in particular need of help. Mandated lockdowns have left many isolated and have been deprived of basic needs like nutritious meals and social interaction. Here's the good news. For the second year in a row, the month of April is going to see the good folks at Podchaser once again raising funds for Meals on Wheels America's Go Further Fund. And you listeners can help make a difference at zero cost to you. For every podcast review that gets left on Podchaser, they're going to donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels, and you can leave as many of those as you like. In addition, every reply to those reviews you leave, that's going to make the amount double. So how can you help? Well, it's easy. All you have to do is go to podchaser.com. You'll create a user account. It's free and totally worth it. And then you're going to be able to go to town listening and leaving reviews up to 20 characters minimum for your favorite podcasts or individual episodes to your heart's delight. Hey, perhaps there's a certain cult film podcast you'd like to give five stars to? Just saying. Your reviews are going to translate into cash that's going to increase the Meals on Wheels Go Further Fund, and that will translate into ensuring that millions of seniors across the country continue to have access to food, human interaction, and assistance. I'm personally asking you to help in this process, and I challenge you. What do you have to lose here? It costs you nothing, you incidentally help the shows you love, and you're absolutely helping an impacted community for a worthy cause. So please, let's make April a great one and help Meals on Wheels today. Thank you for your time. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background on the actors, some information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We are continuing our month-long theme, Drive In, Drive Out. That's our selection of some strange exploitation flicks that we feel are sure to raise an eyebrow, curve a spine, and make you question your cinematic choices. This week, we have a bizarre, cryptic occult tale screening Jim Wyzicki's 1975 cult horror film, Satan's Children. Join us! I'll be perfectly honest, this film is, hands down, one of the weirdest, strangest, most bizarre offerings that we have covered on this show to date. The subject matter itself is simultaneously laughable, yet it is still uncomfortably vile to those who are not used to dabbling in grimy B-movie horror offerings. So please, fair be warned, if you're easily offended or you possess a delicate constitution, this is me giving you an out right here at the top of the show. Go off, listen to a different episode. We can catch you all next week when we cover a new film. It's okay. Are they gone? Good. We don't need that kind of negativity and pearl clutching around here as we delve into a bizarre world of rapey motorcycle gangs, satanic volleyball players, and abusive step-siblings as we launch into this week's offering. 
honestly, this film plays like an after-school special gone totally off the rails on PCP. Or, if you're like me and you enjoy watching the old educational films, this is like one of those Sid Davis movies. You know, specifically Boys Beware, cranked up to 11, with the implicit goal really meant to terrify with its paranoid and mean-spirited homophobia rather than enlighten you to being, you know, aware of situations going on around you. This was a film that was handed to me by the mighty Xerxes himself. It was a hand-me-down. He was a fan of both the film, and he had a large back catalog of Something Weird videos. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with it, Something Weird was started as a home video distributor of exploitation films by a gent named Mike Verney, who himself loved weird and strange films, and he used his job as a projectionist to make transfers of a lot of this weird exploitation cinema that they had lying around, and really, he did it to anything he could get his hands on. Thus, the early catalog of Something Weird video was dedicated to films ranging from the 1930s to the late 1970s, and it was a mishmash. There was pornographic loops, there's education films, there's classic commercials, there's drive-in films, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, spaghetti westerns, and just copious reams of trailers. Brainy's interest in dedication to making money, incidentally, saved many of these films from disintegrating and being lost to time forever. And so, the company exists and still thrives to this day. Now, Xerxes had gotten a copy of this film on DVD for himself, hence I got to inherit the tried-and-true Snapcase VHS, and I sat down to watch it. And I could tell why it was supposed to be disturbing. I mean, in reality, the ingredients all for making one uncomfortable, are there. And we'll get into it, but honestly, the execution of it leaves one, at least in the right frame of mind, well, the opposite of being scared, to tell you the truth. I ended up laughing my ass off over it. This week's film is by no means good. In fact, I will hands down tell you, it's a bad movie. But it has that certain quality that makes it transcend all of its sins, and believe me, there are many. And it propels it into the realm of filmmaking that it's so bad, it's good. So, please, take this week's offering with the spirit that it's intended. This is a crazy drive-in film that the majority of you will never see. It's a film that instead you can just either shake your head at it, you can smile and listen to this description and say, Wow, that's wild and you can totally leave it at that. Now, I'd originally envisioned that this was going to be a sit-down, and I would provide a nice deep dive into the concept of Satanism for this episode, mainly because this film gets it so bizarrely wrong. However, I got lazy in a hurry because, honestly, that's a really tall order. Breaking down any religion is a really tall order, and part of the problem lies with the fact that, man... Things that have been designated in our modern sense as pagan or a cult have deep roots in pre-Christian beliefs long before they became relegated into this binary association as negative other. You have Western teaching and you have other. One really has to truly delve into the different ages to find out what was considered then to be dark magic, occult behavior, what was even deemed as evil, which of course has evolved and changed over time. Much of what we deem generically as being occult has been interchangeably and often incorrectly labeled as being associated with Satan. And for good or ill, being dubbed as being satanic or associated with Satanism itself. So the gist of all this, it gets really complex really fast. So for the purposes of both understanding what we are seeing in this film and understanding which way the wind was blowing when this whole thing got cooked up, the easy Cliff Notes version is going to take all of this in to understand really that we need to focus on just two figures in the late 20th century that are important to the inspiration of this film. One gentleman by the name of Anton LaVey, and one gentleman named Charles Manson. He was born Howard Stanton Levy on April 11, 1930 in Chicago, Illinois, to Michael Joseph Levy and Gertrude Augusta Levy. 
In his youth, his family had relocated to San Francisco, California, and from an early age, young Howard was encouraged to follow his passion for music, particularly his proclivity towards playing piano, organs, and even the calliope. Now, full disclosure, there's a bunch of self-reported stories about LeVay, but after his death, journalists and family members had confirmed that most of what he had stated about his background over the years has been completely fabricated. There are all these tall tales of him working at a circus, taming lions, having affairs with certain people. Basically, a lot of that amounts to bullshit. What we can determine is that as a young man with aspirations to be an entertainer, LeVay left home at the age of 18 to take musical gigs, playing wherever he could. Bars, burlesque houses, hotel lounges, nightclubs. It was here that he had alleged that he had had an affair with an up-and-coming Norma Jean Mortensen. Uh, you would know her as becoming Marilyn Monroe eventually, but this too is contested by Monroe's friends and biographers. LeVay basically bummed around San Francisco in the early 1950s, and he avoided being drafted by enrolling in school and studying criminology. He found himself married at the age of 21 to a 15-year-old Carol Lansing, and in 1952, they welcomed their first daughter Carla into the world. On the surface, aside from that weird age difference I just mentioned, you know, things seemed pretty normal. But there was still a showman waiting to get out there to have his big hit. Not to mention a bit of the old huckster mentality when it came to making a quick buck. LeVay claims that it was during this time he was employed by the San Francisco Police Department, both as a photographer and later offering his services as a psychic investigator. But shocking, I know, the San Francisco Police Department does not have any formal records of him being on their payroll. He would end up divorcing Carol in 1960, leaving her for a younger woman named Diane Haggerty, who would become his common-law wife and the mother of his second daughter, Zena, in 1963. Look, the logic here was that LeVay was working in various places around San Francisco, and he was making quite the name for himself because he had this well-received lounge act. He would do all kinds of crazy theatrics. He had bombastic behavior. He had crazy costumes. He drove himself around town in a coroner's van. Hell, he even had a pet leopard named Zoltan that would appear on stage with him while he played. The point is his show was popular, but it was the right kind of popular. It was popular with people that were in the business, and thus, LeVay got to start hobnobbing with the elite of San Francisco and with Hollywood celebrities. So he started to reinvent himself. He was now called Anton LeVay. He would hold scheduled shows, but then he would also start lecturing, talking about occult acts, talking about rituals, and enough people began to come regularly that it just sort of made sense he morphed it into an opportunity to start his own religion. Kind of. It began as a parody of organized religion, which itself is, you know, kind of funny. You claim you hate Christianity, or at least you hate how it's run. You don't like its rules, you don't like its regulations. You view the rituals as a waste of time. So you're going to show them. First off, you're going to tell people that you're going to worship Satan. Because that's the opposite of the mainstream's beloved god. And of course, you're going to make a bunch of rules and rituals that are going to parody everything that those lame Christians do. It's going to get a lot of people outraged, it's going to get folks talking, and others are going to either flock to see you, to be outraged, or to join in on this perceived sacrilege. P.T. Barnum would have been quite proud. Thus, in 1966, LeVay founded the Church of Satan. Understandably, the media went nuts for it. Satanic weddings, satanic baptisms, satanic masses would follow, and LeVay was always there at the center of it, winking at the camera, relishing his new moniker, the Black Pope. There's a slight problem with all of this, though. The philosophy itself, as it comes to Satanism was rather amorphous, and while LeVay would wax on at length about it, he didn't have any formal prescribed systems of beliefs to point out the tenets of this new 
religion, at least not to show folks who were there for it. Hence, in 1969, LaVey had put together his Satanic Bible. It got published, and the book would lay out the belief structure and rituals for the modern Satanist. Shockingly, though, these writings were heavily plagiarized from previous works. Authors like Alistair Crowley, his writings on dark magic, 16th century occultist and mathematician John Dee was heavily taken from, philosophy was inserted from Nietzsche, and then even a smattering of Ayn Rand's objectivism was thrown in for good measure. Honestly, if you're going to pick up a copy of the Satanic Bible, the first thing that most people find surprising is there's nothing about the biblical Satan in it really at all. LaVey Satanism is patently made to grab the attention and insult Christian believers and, you know, draw people in by way of shock value. It's gaslighting on a grand scale. Seriously, it's in the book. LaVey himself writes in no uncertain terms what he's doing. Here, an example. The usual assumption is that satanic ceremonies or services are always called black masses. A black mass is not the magical ceremony that is practiced by Satanists. The Satanists would not only employ the use of black mass as a form of psychodrama. Furthermore, a black mass does not necessarily imply that the performers of such are actually Satanists. A black mass is essentially just a parody of religious services put on by the Roman Catholic Church, but it can be loosely applied as satire on any religious ceremony. That is from page 100 of the Satanic Bible. You are blatantly telling people this is all a joke. Greetings, you children of Satan. Tonight we will pay homage to our underlord and make sacrifices unto him. First couple of announcements. Uh, last week, some people left some trash behind. Candy wrappers, coffee cups, and empty chip bags. Um, okay, this is a church of Satan. This isn't a waste paper basket. Can't, can. So, if you could please just remember to clean up after yourselves and we can avoid having, you know, ants, worms, raccoons. Hail Satan! Also, um, the neighbor next door is on a real tear. He wants, he's towing cars, so try not to park in front of his house because your car will be towed and it's around $300. $300. Hail Satan! Satanism's tenets are more in line with servicing of the individual needs of its practitioners, touching upon concepts that basically can be summed up as wisdom through excess, a focus on self-betterment, pragmatism, personal responsibility for one's actions, and its own sense of personal ethics that one should strive to maintain. It's more of a new age logic of having a type of self-religion, where the practitioner is actually focused on being the best possible being that they can be for their own betterment and happiness. And the concerns of others outside of that happiness are deemed as inconsequential. Honestly, it's rather tailor-made for the me generation. LaVey would just dress up, wear his robes, hawk his merch, and give his spiel. And he did talk show circuits, he showed up on Donahue, he did The Tonight Show with Carson. He was interviewed, he was published, he made Time, Newsweek, and most importantly, he started getting celebrity attention. Case in point, Sammy Davis Jr., Jane Mansfield, they were both members of the Church of Satan at one point. So, with all this money coming in, and LaVey having this cult of personality, all should be great, right? Well, not really. This is where we have another chap enter, by the name of Charles Manson. He was a wannabe rock star, turned into a doomsday hippie cult leader, who became convinced that he and his followers could touch off a race war by murdering some folks and then blaming it on black extremists. It would only be then, when the dust cleared, that Manson and his family would of course return from their hideout out on Spawn Ranch, and they would of course rebuild society. 
It's not the greatest of plans, and it was made even worse by the fact that the victims were chosen based on the fact that they happened to live in the house that was previously occupied by one Terry Melcher. The man who was tasked with telling old Charlie that he wasn't going to be getting a record contract with Brian Wilson, yes, that Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, his brother's records label, based on Charlie's unprofessional and, frankly, turbo-weird behavior when he was in the recording studio. Thus, over the weekend of August 8, 1969, the tragic Tate-LaBianca murders were committed by Manson family members, and the country was horrified, both by the ritualistic nature of the killings, as well as this image of Flower Children cult members coming across their television sets. Murderers. In the minds of Mr. and Mrs. Joe Average American, hippies were already not to be trusted what with their weird clothes, long hair, propensity towards drugs, and crazy music. Now you've coupled that image with ritualistic killing. And what's worse, the rise of this nutty guy out in California who said he's starting this church that's dedicated to Satan. This is the perfect time to begin to lay a groundwork for making films that would play upon that very concept. Early Proto-Satanic Panic Enter director Jim Wizicki. By all accounts from those who knew him, a nice fellow. He was a local fixture at the Tampa, Florida television scene, working as a TV director and producer for local Tampa news station WTVT Channel 13. Wizicki had, prior to this film, dabbled in directing small segments for their local shock theater package. Uh, let me explain something. Shock theater would be leased out to various small UHF stations who would want to buy it. Um, it was the license to show horror films, so they would like be like a universal monster package, and you would get Frankenstein, Wolfman, that sort of thing. And then you would film wraparounds with a host, and that was your program. Uh, basically, what Rick Coase of Chicago does for Svengooly nowadays in modern times. We're going to show a movie, and then we're going to host it. So he directed these shock theater wraparound segments before he actually tried to attempt to direct his own black exploitation film in 1972, another drive-in theater classic called Willie's Gone, which for most people concerned, uh, it has been lost to the sands of time. They think the film has completely been destroyed at this point. From sources that are all secondhand and apocryphal, we can at least glean some of the following about the creation of this movie. Wazicki got it in his head that with everything that was going on, pointing out to the Manson murders and to devil-worshipping, that films about devil-worshipping cult members were going to be really big when it came to drive-in horror attendance. And he was able to convince other people of this fact as well, at least enough to lend him the cash to finance this film. Now, I've seen some sources say that the budget for this film was $50,000. If you look at IMDb, and hell, even a better indicator, if you look at the film itself, you quickly see that is wrong, and the estimated budget that's put forward there of $25,000 seems a far more reasonable figure. He got writers Gary Garrett and Ron Levitt to pen him a story, and he started to put together a cast, which was mostly made up of amateur students that came from the University of Southern Florida's theater department, who were all hungry for a break and, most importantly, would work for cheap. It was an entire cast of unknowns. Costs were cut whenever possible. John Muscari, who was in charge of the special effects, would later go on to comment about how they stretched working with whatever they had on hand just to get this film finished. Example, for the scenes that involved the fire ants, they had to use these, well, as they described it, large African ants, and they were trying to figure out how to exactly wrangle them. How do you wrangle an ant? At least prior to dumping them on the poor actresses who needed to be buried up to their, you know, neck in sand. After shooting the majority of the scenes with these ants, Moscari basically held on to them over the weekend, fearful that he didn't want to just release them. What if they needed to have pickup shots or anything else? And so he did what any practical person would do. He stored them in the one thing that he had available at the time, an empty potato chip can. 
Now, upon going home for the weekend, when they returned to the set to commit shooting further on Monday, Mosqueri was stunned to find that his diminutive actors had chewed their way out through the cardboard tube and had infested the trailer that they were using as the base of operations, which pretty much ended their screen time. All their things would pop up, like uh, scenes involving the quicksand. Mosqueri had been trying to get something that he could use to look really good on camera for the quicksand itself. And eventually they stumbled on utilizing a sort of overboiled mix of oatmeal to get the desired look. The downside is they just didn't have enough on hand, so Mosqueri sent his crew members and they spent an entire day driving around the area buying up all of the oatmeal they could get their hands on, effectively wiping the local supply out for miles. The other issue, though, that they hadn't planned on when you make oatmeal, they're shooting all these swamp scenes on land that belonged to some cattle ranchers. So they're taking out these drums of oats and they're setting them up to, you know, be deadly quicksand. But they didn't account for the fact that cattle enjoy the smell of oats since that's what they get fed. So they had this entirely new problem of trying to keep excitable cows from wandering into their shots and had to then patrol the set and keep cows out of there who wanted to come over and eat all their said quicksand. Now, Wazicki would do all these shots, and he would tell actors that they were doing marvelous jobs. We caught it on the first take, don't worry. But it was solely done for the reason that he didn't have the film available to do any reshoots. Another example of this, uh, actress Rosemary Orlando wanted to have another crack at filming her death scene. She had bit down on a blood capsule, but she didn't really have a feel for how it would break, and now that she knew, she really wanted to try it again. But Wazicki convinced her, nope, it was perfect the way you did it, I loved it, let's keep going. Not really wanting to tell her that he just couldn't spare the second take. That was something she would learn years later. The film rolled on, and it got eventually put to bed in the spring of 1975, and Wazicki was certain that he was going to have a winner on his hands for the drive-in circuit. Oddly, though, something did happen after this film finished production. An actual, real-life, senseless murder occurred just a few miles away from where the film had wrapped shooting in Tampa. You see, in late February of 1975, a 27-year-old by the name of Billy Glenn Isley had picked up a trio of hitchhikers in Ohio who were traveling from Arlington, Virginia. The hitchhikers were 19-year-old David Nyberg, his girlfriend, 18-year-old D. Lou Davis, and a 20-year-old Kenneth Robert Houston. They traveled with Isley to a house that he had rented in Tampa, Florida. On March 6th, that first night in said house, Nyberg ended up taking out a knife and he cut Houston's throat as he slept. This awakened Houston, who tried to run away from his attacker, but Nyberg ended up chasing him down and stabbed him multiple times, purportedly all while chanting, Die Satan, Die. Nyberg and Davies then took Houston's body, put him in the trunk of the car, and drove off. They eventually dumped him on a rural road in Virginia, some 900 miles away from Houston was actually murdered. On March 6th, Nyberg checked himself into a mental institution and claimed that he had witnessed a murder. Nyberg and Davis would eventually be arrested on March 13th near Oklahoma City, and they were extradited back to Florida. At their extradition hearing, Nyberg and Davis had disclosed to the court that they were actually a wizard and a witch, respectively, and, oh, by the way, they were also married. During Nyberg's murder trial, his lawyers tried to argue that he was both insane and was under the control of Isley. The jury had decidedly taken a different path on the whole matter, and Nyberg was understandably found guilty of first-degree murder, and he received a life sentence. Davis, herself who was pregnant with Nyberg's child, pled guilty to manslaughter and was given a sentence of six months to ten years. Isley was also found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Now, all that is sad, tragic, horrible, and more than a little weird. But the media, who were looking to sensationalize a story even further, wanted to link the murders with the film that was just shot there about this cult of Satanists, even though the filming was done 
before the murders took place. Local news articles became hot to talk about how the filming of Satan's Children was inspired by the very real-life killing of Robert Houston. And it was real easy to get those dates a bit twisted up. And soon, as it came out that a self-proclaimed cult wizard had been involved with a murder, there was now going to be this film about a weird satanic youth cult ready to be released? It was very hard to separate facts from fiction. For his part, Wazicki was crazy like a fox. He would give interviews to any who would listen to him on how his film itself didn't have any connections to the senseless murder of Mr. Houston. Other than the fact, though, that these cults do exist, and they do worship the devil as opposed to God. Well, thanks, Jim, that doesn't really help people. And Wazicki would also tastelessly brag, as he did in an interview with Box Office Magazine in May of 1975, that both he and his co-writers agree that Satan's Children may be one of the most gory and most frightening films of 1975, and that the story shown in their film was even more violent than that recent murder. Talk about some carnival barker tactics. That, I mean, how do you quantifiably compare violence and murder. I mean, alright, let me do something I normally don't do until after we discuss the film. The rejoinder to that is, no, Satan's Children absolutely is not the most frightening gory film of 1975. Just for the record. I get it. Defining things as being frightening and gory, that's subjective. This film may be disturbing to some folks, but it's patently wrong to try to equate very, and I mean very fake-looking violence on screen, to someone who was actually tragically killed. Regardless of this, Wazicki's tactics drummed up a lot of buzz, and it played on the dual fears that society was having towards both the youth of the day and this general topic that people had you know, on horror itself, just they were afraid of things that were labeled satanic. And so the local drive-ins would hype the connection to the so-called crimes committed by a satanic cult. And this spread the word, and they would advertise and even suggest to local radio and television affiliates that they should run news stories and encourage discussions about Satan-worshipping youth of the day. Pretty crazy, don't you think? I mean, hey, we could get into more, but geez, folks, you've been ever so patient. So how about this? Let's get to that trailer. What do you say? Tampa, Florida, young Bobby Douglas, as played by Stephen White, has it rather rough. He lives with his abusive stepfather, as played by Eldon Meacham, 
and he's always being made to do manual labor around the house. He also has this annoying tease of a stepsister named Janice, as played by Joyce Malloy, who spends her time swimming, soaking up the sun, and alternating between sexually stringing along her step-sibling and actively trying to get him further in trouble and beaten by their father. We get a glimpse of this all when Bobby first fails to do his assigned yard work tasks to his father's liking, and his sister openly screws with him. That same evening, the family sullenly sits down to eat some takeout chicken, and Bobby's looking forward to going out and seeing a film with some of his friends. Janice thinks, though, she's being funny by attempting to play footsie with him under the table. But when Bobby holds her foot hostage with his hand and mimes stabbing her with a fork, she ends up pulling out the big guns, and she sets the stage for a fight. What's that brown stuff I found in your room, Bobby? Bobby's had it, though. He goes to his room, he fetches his stashed marijuana, and he runs out of the house into the night, shouting back at his abusive stepdad that he can just go to hell. And he promptly ends up wandering the night, roaming the very vacant, very dicey-looking boulevards that Tampa has to offer. He eventually finds himself in a bar, sipping on a Coke, sitting in a booth, planning his next move. An older man, as played by Harry Williams, comes in and attempts to pick him up, offering his friendship and attempting to ask Bobby if he's okay, draw him into a conversation to tell him about his problems. Bobby, though, isn't having any of it, and gets ready to tell the old guy to buzz off, but that's when a burly biker named Jake comes in, as played by Bob Barber, and he rousts the older gentleman from the booth, threatening physical violence if he won't leave. Jake and Bobby end up hitting it off, though. They have a good conversation. They're talking, actually, about Bobby's problems, and Jake offers to let Bobby come and stay with him. You know, not deal with these weirdos. They head back to Jake's apartment on his bike, and while Bobby sits down and enjoys a beer and looks at the artwork, he doesn't realize that Jake has some other plans in mind. He quickly finds himself threatened with a knife, and Jake ties him up 
and begins to call a couple of friends over to come and party. Bobby is now treated to the nightmare scenario of being imprisoned in a car while four drunken rednecks drive around, beat him up, and sexually assault him. They end up dumping him out in the sticks, right on the edge of a swamp, and they leave him for dead. Bobby is found, though, in the morning, unconscious by a commune of satanic volleyball-playing hippies. Yes, I said that correctly who take him back to their compound and decide what to do with him. Normally, the group is led by Simon, as played by Robert C. Ray II, but Simon's away on some business, and so the group is under the direction of Sherry, as played by Kathleen Marie Archer. Well, she falls in love with Bobby as soon as she sees him, and orders the other members to begin to care and nurse him back to health. This is opposed by another of the lieutenants of the commune, Joshua, as played by John Edwards, who argues that Simon would not approve of helping a weak victim like this, nor would the Dark Master be in favor of it. He's beautiful. He's queer. Get out. Got no business bringing him in here like this. I said get out, Joshua. Simon's got rules. Simon's not here. And while he's gone, I make the rules. You enforce the rules. You don't make new ones. You don't change them. Just because you fall in love with this face doesn't mean you can bring him in here. Simon's the only one that can bring new people in, and he would never bring him in. Shut up. Simon won't have it, and neither will the master. Don't say he was raped, because you don't know. Even if he was raped, that only makes it worse. Simon don't like victims. And the master... The master will grant dispensation. Insane. I am in charge. Simon is. Simon is gone. I have the power. I have the authority. You can either live with that or you can leave. But if you interfere with my actions... My decisions, I'll bring down the wrath of Satan himself. You go making sacrifices seeking dispensation for a queer, and you'll bring down Satan's wrath, all right? You'll unleash all the demons of hell on this place. Get out! For her part, though, Sherry won't hear of it. She has other problems to deal with at the moment. Her fellow cult member, Monica, as played by Rosemary Orlando, keeps making blatant sexual overtures towards her, which Sherry has violently and roundly rebuffed, threatening that she will be punished dearly if she continues this behavior. Monica, though, well, doesn't really stop, so Sherry has her shackled in the basement to be tried. But before she can properly deal with things, she learns that Joshua and some other of his followers have been ritualistically communing with Satan, begging him for help in removing Sherry from power and bringing Simon back to them. Send Simon home, Master. She knows not what she does. All your followers are loyal, safe for her, Master. They follow her blindly, believing that her course is correct and true. Simon is needed, Master. Sherry deals with all of this rather quickly. She has the three members who opposed her rounded up and hanged publicly for the rest of the commune to see. She does get to enjoy a lovely night with Bobby, not realizing, though, that Satan indeed has compelled Simon to come home, and he is none too pleased by what has gone down in his absence. Monica is the one who wakes up Sherry, which notifies her that she's going to have some trouble coming her way. And she does attempt to sheepishly greet her boss when he invites her to breakfast and tell her side of things. I uh, didn't expect you back so soon. Neither did I. Have a nice trip. Okay, I guess. You have a nice hanging. Simon, I can explain everything.
You want some coffee? No, no, sir. No breakfast at all? your friend? He's in bed. He doesn't care to eat breakfast with me. He'd love to eat breakfast with you. Uh, you didn't tell him he could come? He... He can't come. Why is that? Joshua was thwarting my authority. And how was that? My I'm in love. Simon does take issue with Bobby being allowed in, especially with his status of being a victim. He's weak, and worse, he could possibly be gay, something the Dark Lord won't have. Sherry will be punished for this infraction, unless, of course, she can be proven right about Bobby, then all will be forgiven. She's forced to dig a hole and stand in it, while members of the commune end up filling it in and then dump concentric circles of syrup all around her, leading, of course, to them dumping the last remaining bit on her head, slowly attracting fire ants to her location. Her fate is now tied to whatever action Bobby is about to take next. Simon doesn't end up sparing Monica, though. He tells her that, well, he doesn't have any reason not to believe Sherry per se, and he tells her that Satan will be harsh but fair with her. So he gives her free warning. If she has any doubts, it's best she doesn't lie to him. Monica, though, doubles down, asserting that she has never made any inappropriate advances on Sherry, and she's never harbored any erotic thoughts towards the ladies of the compound. And, well, for her lies, and in front of Simon... Monica ends up being struck dead by evil. Simon then goes on to visit with Bobby and explain to him the seriousness of all of this. My name is Simon, and you are in trouble. Why? She was wrong about you. Had she been right, then Joshua would have been wrong. In which case, Joshua's attempts to summon me would have constituted an improper challenge to authority. In which case, the hangings were totally justified. If she hadn't done them, then I certainly would have. Mm, undue annoyance. But she was wrong. She was right. We talked about it last night. She was right, I tell you. I'm willing to give Satan my soul right now. <laughs> he doesn't want it. Why not? You're weak. You're a loser. Satan wants winners. A winner is someone who gets what he wants. And you never have. Right now, you want to get up and out of that bed. You've been wanting to ever since you woke up in this room. But you haven't. And you won't. I'm hurt. You're in pain. To be hurt is to be physically incapacitated. You just don't feel good. Your ass is sore. Bobby is motivated to save Sherry and to prove himself worthy. He painfully forces himself up from the bed, and he escapes the compound into the swamps, fighting his way past cult members and running out through the open, garbed only in his underwear. 
he ends up taking on and surviving a scrape with three of the cult security members who are following him. He manages to evade and trick them, killing one of them by utilizing the electric fence on the land, and the other two end up being swallowed up in quicksand as they attempt to grab for him. Filthy, cut up, and in shorts, Bobby ends up hitchhiking back home, and he walks right into the house without acknowledging his father or his stepsister, making a beeline to the fridge for some food. When his father comes to yell at him and threaten him, Bobby responds by deftly smashing a bottle over his head, dropping the man to the floor. We then cut to seeing a clean and clothed Bobby driving the family car off into the night, with Janice tied up and gagged in the back seat. The family shotgun is riding with Bobby in the front of the car, and he proceeds to drive over to the apartment of one Jake, and wouldn't you know it, all of those greasy redneck bikers are hanging out, having beers. He makes short work of all four of them with some slow-mo shotgun antics before removing their heads off-screen as trophies. He then takes his prizes and his trussed-up stepsister back to the commune to settle up with Simon. Morning. Got something for you. That's, uh, very nice. Thank you. What is it supposed to mean? That Joshua was wrong. Now that he has convinced Simon that he is worthy of being cult member material, Sherry is freed from her torture and allowed to clean up, and Bobby gets to share a romantic interlude in Sherry's room. All while Janice is prepared and crucified by the rest of the volleyball cult. Finally belonging to a group and with someone who loves him, Bobby is at home. Credits roll. Where do we even start? I mean, clearly, this film has a ton of problems. And here, let's focus on some of the bad stuff. The horror here? I would say it's pretty tame for modern standards, and I would even argue that it's not that crazy for back in the day. Honestly, I don't think someone watching it today is going to find anything associated with this loosey-goosey depiction of the occult is at all what makes this film either horrifying or terrifying. Rather, the horror comes from the blatant homophobia and disturbing sexual violence. Although it's not directly seen, that's what strikes folks as potentially making this a tough film to watch. I can't in any good conscience condone the story itself as written by Levitt and Garrett. According to them, if I'm reading this right, it doesn't matter what a person actually believes at the end of the day, just as long as they're not gay because apparently the thing that both God and Satan agree on is being gay is wrong. Clearly, neither of these writers have ever met anyone who was, or they wouldn't have leaned perhaps so hard into making the characters here. Jeez, especially by way of Monica. Simultaneously being so whiny and yet shown to have this conniving and predatory disposition. And for that matter, what exactly is the moral of this story that we're supposed to take away from? right? Bobby runs away. He trusts the wrong people. He gets hurt for it. But all that's okay because in the end he gets them back? I don't get it. Should I be rooting for Bobby? I mean, he's the hero, right? He's leaving this abusive home situation. He's punished, essentially, for running away. 
by both a manipulative stepsister who teases him and a father who beats him. And in leaving that, he gets jumped and assaulted by some redneck bikers. By the time he breaks away from the cult, to save the only person in this film who's been kind to him and who actually cares for him, it sort of feels like the story is trying to get us to see, I guess, that it's better to get vengeance on your abusers and join a satanic cult and serve a dark master than, again, to be considered to be a victim and gay. It's kind of extreme, to put it mildly. All that said, this film has still grown on me over the years, and I'll explain why. I, I can't get around the fact. Technically, at its core, it's a rape and revenge film. And that's a genre I've actually never been a real fan of. But this is so ineptly done, it is so poorly acted, and it is so unconvincingly filmed that this is a film, again, for those in the right frame of mind, that can be enjoyed as a completely unintentional comedy of cult proportions. Like, example, I'm a big fan of the weird, strange, satanic compound they find themselves in. It's a sprawling ranch, it has all these crazy, interesting, dilapidated buildings on it, but then as soon as they go inside, everything is so sleek and hip and modern. It looks like just stylish office lounges you would find in the early 70s. And yet, it has all these dungeons, these cavernous basement-like facilities that are just stocked with lame, paper-mache-looking Satan imagery to worship. It's so low-rent and cheap and chintzy, how could anyone possibly find it scary? The fact that it lacks a decent soundtrack, that you can hear just this pop and hiss of the flawed performances. If this film were just a scotch less rapey, I think this would have been a perfect good-bad film to have the likes of Mystery Science Theater 3000, or even now to a lesser extent, those fellows over at Rift Tracks to just really give it a run for its money with wisecracks and shenanigans. Again, taking the sexual assault stuff out, this very much has a feel that you would get on a film like Manos, The Hands of Fate. Thus, fans of bad films who know what they're getting into can really be in for a bizarre treat when they sit down to watch it. Again, provided they're willing to give it a solid chance and provided you give them the warning. Bobby's sudden turn into a Satan-supporting murder machine is a fun one. He goes from being this abused, timid kid to this uncompromising terminator of an individual who's out for vengeance. Credit given where credit is due, while he's not actually the greatest of actors, Stephen White, at least in the day, was a pretty brave guy. It's hard enough to play a role like Bobby. You are willingly going in to play a teen who gets beat up, abused, and raped and left for dead. It's all very intense, and it leaves someone looking very vulnerable. But I would argue what makes him more of an impressive actor, as well as adding to the humor, is really he spends the majority of this film running through the swamp in his tidy whitey BVDs. For my money, and I do really love a good, quote, bored, evil kind of presentation, as well as the ever-changing length of the Tipperillos that Robert C. Ray II smokes, and his version of the character Simon is so delightful. He's so detached, so chill, so bored with it, it kind of makes one wonder, how does this smooth-dressed guy find himself leading a cult of satanic volleyball players? All the rest of them look, well, at least for the day, like hippies, and here he is, this real suave gent. How did they survive out here on this compound? None of them have jobs. Simon has men that seem to wander the perimeter. He even has his own electrified fence on this property. Somebody's got money somewhere. I wonder where it's coming from. So I can hear you out there now. Chris, how was this film received? Well, unfortunately for Wazicki, this film was not the giant moneymaker that he had originally envisioned. It made the rounds on the local Tampa circuit, and the fact that the film was distributed by Hanson Films that were based out of Peoria, Illinois, that allowed the film to have a small tour on the drive-in circuit 
in the Midwest, which included showings in Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. Shockingly, though, there's not a lot of reviews that are either positive or negative out there when the film was released because not enough people saw it. Box Office Magazine essentially has the only review I've been able to find and actually posted some positives. While they acknowledge it's not a pleasant picture and they allude to the fact that it's rooted in a story that could be about any one of the young men and women in today's newspaper headlines, it should serve as a surprise and a shock to viewers. Still, they pointed out it has a good performance for the lead actor of Stephen White portraying Bobby Douglas. Truthfully, this film is really a lost gem. Case in point, if you go out on Rotten Tomatoes today, at least as of this recording, it has zero critic reviews. Based on the rating of a little bit over 50 reviews from the audience members, the film comes in at only about 17% with the audience. Now, normally I would say, yeah, you know, but it's still great. No, no, no. In this case, I'm not even going for the argument that you need to ignore all of that. What I'm going to say is, look, that's good, because that puts it into that same good-bad territory of the other films I've already said it's related to. Case in point, Manos, the aforementioned film, that's coming in at 20%. Or 1962's The Brain That Wouldn't Die, an equally good-bad movie, that's at 28% with the audience. So again, it has the same bona fides of being bad, which one can then make the argument for so it's so bad it is good i guess i can hear you there too how did it shake out well for his part wiziki never really got his big payday but he didn't go away he would end on continuing to work but he wouldn't make any more features he just was a fixture in the local tampa television scene and he continued on until he retired he would eventually pass away in 1994 and was basically remembered for being that local director who tried. Stephen White himself didn't really go on to have a huge career. He only starred in a few other roles. He seemed to kind of have a chip on his shoulder about taking the role of Bobby Douglas, not truly pleased that he gets to be memorialized as a victim on the big screen, and he's sort of frustrated by his decisive lack of clothing when you see him. Truly, with this cast, probably the most successful of them would be the actress Kathleen Marie Archer, who would go on to at least have roles in television programs like ER and showing up as a reoccurring character on Will and Grace. Interestingly enough, though, as time has gone on, this film has been rediscovered. And what's more, it's actually been getting a bit of a renaissance over the last couple years. Back in 2014, this film was showcased at the Tampa Theater for a gonzo midnight movie style showing that included inviting the actress Rosemary Orlando, actor John Edward, and then crew members John Moscari and Bill Dudley to have a Q&A session with the audience after the film was screened. They even got Stephen White to join them. And by all accounts, it was a rollicking good time as they got to talk about this cheesy bad picture that they all made together. You can actually watch clips of it from YouTube. It's quite enjoyable. But based on the success of that showing, in what I can only now describe as a strange display of Floridian pride, the Tampa Theater has now had repeat showings of this film. The latest one, at least as of this writing, was back on October of 2020, and all of it was done to support the local Arts Council, allowing folks to stream this film in their homes. Tampa Art Society described the film itself as an after-school special from the depths of hell. It's truly a deranged gut punch. This is a gritty and baffling experience that could have only happened here in Florida. Say whatever you want, but they know what they like down there and they are proud of their local artists, local actors. Again, this is not a film that can be deemed as good by any real stretch, but it's also quite silly and it's so amazingly bad and so twisted. For those who know how to live right, I think this is a film that could become a new bad favorite.
The version of Satan's Children screened here at the LSCE was the 2019 Blu-ray put out as a joint release from Something Weird Video and the American Genre Film Archive, and it comes loaded with interesting features. You have to understand though, Satan's Children isn't even the main film on the disc. That honor goes to the documentary Satanus, the Black Mass, which, from 1970, goes into the Church of Satan and has interviews of Anton LaVey talking all about and introducing how a Black Mass works. While it's full of LaVey's tall tales and his interesting antics, you could do a lot worse for your money. Plus, you get to see the showman at work. He plays a bunch of rollicking songs on his organ, and he's, you know, acting like an overall ham. Satan's Children is just one of the bonus films that comes on the disc, plus you get some animated shorts, you get the third edition of Boys Beware, the one that was redone in 1979, and several trailers, plus you get cool cover art that's reversible. That's not too bad if you ask me. Now, when I purchased my copy over two years ago, I got it for $19.99, but at least as of this writing, the Blu-ray combo disc on Amazon is listed as being out of stock. Important to note though, not out of print. DVD versions are available for the running rate of $9.99, so that's not too bad of a deal if you ask me. Now, remember folks, we'll say this again, we don't get anything here for telling you where to make purchases. We just feel it's important in this day and age to continue to support physical media so that these fine folks who own the rights to the content that we know and love will keep releasing it to us. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that what's important? You get to have more of that stuff you know and love. Besides, this film, as I've said before, it's Looney Tunes. And if you love good, bad movies, you're not gonna wanna miss this. So, what are you waiting for? Get out there, get yourself a copy of Satan's Children today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you'll join us again next week. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey, Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow and review if you could please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we are a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal or wish to have a contributed segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, please take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Thank you.